Welcome to Tesserai. I'm Bob Stevenson. And I'm Steve Cartwright. Thanks for joining us as we explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways that it's been dismantled. While calling us the most divided we have ever been as a nation might be a bit much for a country that literally had a civil war, it's no secret that we live in polarizing times. We see this division perhaps the most in the realm of politics. And even though it's a big one to tackle, we're excited to explore integrity in this realm. Helping us do that today is a special guest, Dr. Michael McCoy, who is a political science professor at Wheaton College. Michael is originally from East Orange, New Jersey, graduated from Duke University in 2002, and earned his MA and PhD in politics from Princeton University in 2012. He has been a professor at the college since 2014. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about Origins for you. Why did you decide to study political science in the first place? So, you know, I've been into uh, history, but, well, two things. I've been into history since I was a kid and quite honestly been into uh, people watching since I was a kid, just trying to understand um, why people act the way they do. Just that's been an interest of mine going all the way back to the schoolyard. And and then when I got into history uh, sometime in middle school, it became the people I was interested in were people who held political power, whether it was you know, within my country or between countries. And so uh, by the time I got to college, I was a full-blown you know, political nerd, like to read you know, newspaper all the time, or at this point now it started to become more websites. And so when the time came to a major, I was thinking I want to do either history or political science. And then I've always been a bad decision maker. So I just did both. I was a double major, which <laughs> as a professor, I often advise my students not to do because that's a heck of a lot of work. And all you live then is your two majors. Um, and so you can't, you can't double PhD. Some people can, but they're psychos. Um, and so <laughs> by the time it came to make a decision on which way to go, actually, I, I, I've always had more of a passion just for history. I love stories. And I like to understand like the narrative of stories. But for me, a story means nothing if you don't know why. What's the why? And political science wants to answer the why. And so I went in that direction. And uh, as you noted in the intro, went on to Princeton, where I got my master's and then um, a PhD in uh, politics, uh, most especially uh, international politics uh, is what I specialize in. Um, but, but even to this day, I mean, still... Love to talk, you know, U.S. election politics, um, all the way down to, and, and, you know, my students in the classroom know I like to talk a lot about how you see politics play out in movies and how that, or politics play out in your own household and how that affects the way you think about politics and, you know, in the uh, greater realm. Uh, you are recently tenured at Wheaton College. So first of all, congratulations. That's, that's big, Thank man. you very much. Yeah. Um, and as a professor here, uh, what is something that you desire for all of your students to learn? Um, you want them to grasp, regardless of what class they take of yours, regardless of maybe even if they're a poli sci major. Um, yeah, what 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 are what are some of those things, or at least one of those things that you're like, this is essential. I want you to get this. The biggest passion I've had, and this is really developed in my time at Wheaton, and it shows how much I've you know uh, really integrated into the Wheaton culture, drank the Kool Aid of for Christ and His Kingdom. Um, is really to just impress upon my students so hard that um, God's values, God's ethics are 
um, the values for the world, not, not to say of the world, but they're for the world, which is to say they have effects in the world. And I think we can often have this idea of, well, there's, you know, there's these good Christian values and I should live them out in my personal life, but that's not how the world works. And now I have to adopt some sort of worldly cultural values to survive in the world. And one of the things I've learned over time and that I impress on my students is that no, God created the world. And so he actually understands better how the ways of our world work. And so, you know, issues of, of, of honesty, of integrity, of sacrifice, these will actually yield better material outcomes in the world. And, and uh, so a lot of times I like to say that the moral is material. And the principle that really um, got me to see this in my life was actually the um, shooting that happened at the Charleston AME church. Mm. And when the people of that congregation chose to publicly forgive in one of the most painful situations ever. And what you actually saw was that change the politics of South Carolina, that people that in the South Carolina legislature, you had uh, representatives from both parties of different ideologies, weeping and wanting to, um, acknowledge this amazing act of forgiveness. And it's what led to the taking down of the Confederate flag um, in South Carolina, that you had um, people who were descendants from, I think it was like the great grandniece of Jefferson Davis, a descendant of Jefferson Davis saying, look, uh, we need to take this flag down because people in my community have died. Uh, the grandson of Strom Thurmond saying the same thing. And, and it impacted me so heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me think for the first time, are we doing politics wrong? Mm. Are we not taking seriously the word of God, that God's words have effect not only in the kingdom to come, but right now here in the world. And that, and as I've meditated on that and taught in it and, you know, and it's, and you're developing ideas. Sometimes the classroom is both the best and worst place to develop an idea because on one hand, your students get to see you wrestle with an idea and you can interact with them, but students you know, often expect you to be the one to give answers and they give answers in clear ways. And when you're struggling with something, it, it can get kind of messy. But, you know, as I, as I worked through these ideas in the classroom, in my own uh, prayer time and conversation with friends, um, I really just saw more and more that, yeah, God's morals, God's ethics are the ways we should be thinking about politics. And if we were to engage in politics that way, we would see better outcomes, even in our material world today. And so that's something I heavily emphasize, uh, particularly, you know, the higher level up a class is, I emphasize that more and more. But even in my intro level classes, I have a particular day set aside where I'm like, okay, we just learned all these things about international politics. Now, how do we think about these things in a Christian way, Mm -hmm. right? So if we think that, powerful countries decide how things run. It's like, okay, well, many of you are members of a powerful country. How do you want to see the world? Mm-hmm. What's Christ's vision for how we would see the world? Mm-hmm. And, and again, you could see with students that this is a whole new concept. They don't expect this in the political realm. They think politics is separate from their, their, their um, Christian ethics, their gospel ethics. And, and I'm a strong believer that they're not. Um, that our gospel ethics must be be in the realm of politics. Now that opens a lot of tricky doors about like, okay, does that mean we're now imposing Christian values right. on people, and do people right. have to be Christians to think this? And and these are the type of questions I have worked through, both you know 
in community other, with others and in the classroom. And so I feel like I have better thoughts on that today than I did when I first started thinking about this four or five years ago. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I think that, yeah, we're going to have to, I, I want to bounce back there for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to bounce back there for sure. But tell me for a moment, uh, I want to talk a little bit about polarization in politics. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I feel like this is an extremely polarizing time. We're calling it that, but I think we see it in a lot of ways, uh, a very, uh, a very contested um uh, presidential election, and even though there are many elections to go around and many elections to pay attention to and to participate in, the presidential one gets everybody's attention the most. Um, so with that in mind, would you say uh, that we are, in general, more polarized now than most times in U.S. history? And um, is there a period where we've been significantly less polarized and actually pretty unified? Um, so to your first question, are we the most polarized? Um, I said, more or less, I'm going to give the answer of yes. I mean, you, I think you rightly noted that we're a country that has fought a civil war. So, you know, we should put everything in perspective. But I would say that, I mean, the common thing to say was this is the most polarized the country has been since 1968, right? That, that's been a common thing to say. It was a very divisive time. It was the height of the uh, Vietnam War, at least from the American perspective, in terms of you know involvement in number of casualties, it was you know that was the year of you know assassinations. That was the year uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. That was the year um, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. A highly contentious election, Chicago riots, and I think um, and I think there are parallels if you think about um, 1968 and 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 you know. Uh, 2020 or, you know, 16 to 20, right, the, the, the Trump presidency, in terms of what both had in common is you are feeling the effects of um, division over a war. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we're still, you know, we're, one, we still actually are a country at war, right? We are still at war in Afghanistan. The United States is always at war somewhere. Um and even the residuals effects of the devastations of 9-11 in the Iraq war. I, I don't think we sometimes appreciate how the, the devastating effects these things had. Um, what it meant to have so many um, uh, um, wounded veterans reenter our society. And we learned so much more about PTSD and the damage that did and, and, and how that's affected communities. I don't think we talk about that enough. But it's uh, but if you talk to people, if you talk to military families, they they feel that very strongly. Um, and then the same thing that we experience today, as we experienced in the '60s, is the um, backlash of a civil rights movement, right? I mean, the, the classic civil rights movement being the movement of the '60s. But but if you look, if you think about the 2000s, and if you think about the the election of the first black president, and if you think about the major expansion in LGBTQ rights. Um, and there's been um, so, there's been social pushback, and so those two. So there's a lot of parallels there. I think what makes this current era though different from the '60s and different than almost anything I could think of is that we've never had a president more hostile to democracy than the people are themselves. And when I was first thinking about this, I was thinking like. Um, well, we've never seen a president more hostile to democracy. And it's like, well, that's actually not true. 
Uh, I mean, hostility to full-blown democracy is actually more of an American tradition than American than democracy itself. Hmm. Um, but what we've Hold seen is that as America, just a second, what do you mean by that? So, so actually, so let me let me bounce the question back to you, Bob. And I apologize, I'm going <laughs> slightly professor. Great, mode. great. Um, what is democracy? You say democracy. What I, do you think I democracy? I came here for like, answers. What would you- sorry but i'm gonna unlock the answers in you so so if you were to say if you were to say democracy what would you what would you say democracy is um generally speaking i suppose democracy as a popularly conceived would uh be a representation um of the will of the people to some degree in in legislation and governance, um, broadly defined, but I know that there's a whole lot, whole lot there. So, <laughs> and that's wrong. But I know the right answer. But I'm not going to tell you. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> but I'll let you say it now. So no, I mean, I, one, I, 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 the reason I even threw the question out there is because I don't think we even have a solid answer on what democracy right. is. Right? I think you have different ideas. Um, and I think, but here the things we tend to think about is. Um, universal or at least near universal adult suffrage, right? That all adults have the right to vote, barring, you know, some type, unless we can imagine some limitations based on either, you know, mental capacity or maybe like if you've committed such a vile crime that you can strip those rights. But, you know, barring that, near universal um, adult suffrage, um, as you said, some type of, rep- some form of representation in government. Um, and, some level of social rights, be they liberal rights, the way we think in our American context, kind of your bill of rights rights or um, uh, rights in terms of what society owes you in terms of education and healthcare and all those things. Well, if we think about those conditions of being a democracy, then bare minimum, bare minimum, how could we really think the United States was democratic before uh, 1919 when, I'm sorry, 1920 when women were granted the right to vote. I mean, right then, Mm you had at least half the population couldn't vote um, just on the books. Then you get to the reality of American system. Well, we know that of course um, African-Americans were denied any real right to vote in much of the country until sometime in the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, how we think about native rights in the United States, something we rarely think about, but there's, I mean, that's the sort of complicated legal system, but, it's hard to call it anything but disenfranchisement because um, they're living within the United States. They don't really have rights. I mean, they have, they're recognized as a separate entity, but a separate entity that can't really function on its own while not really engaging in the politics of the land it's in. So, so if we really, if we kind of step back from the rhetoric that we think of as, Oh, it's like, you know, since, since 1776 was the passage of the constitution, if we look at the reality of how democracy has progressed in the United States over time, then the fullness of democracy in the U.S. wasn't really reached until, you know, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. And so, but the, and so I could say, oh, we've never had a president more hostile democracy than Donald Trump, but that wouldn't actually be, that wouldn't be fair to Donald Trump. So let me go on the record as it's a recording. I'm going to be fair to Donald Trump. Um, that wouldn't be fair to Donald Trump to say he's at least democratic because you'd have to think about that in the context of where we've been. The difference is, the president is typically in step with where the people are. 
This is the first time where you see a president who is more hostile to our democratic institutions than most of the American people are. I mean, this is a president who, to, to this day, right? I mean, he just spoke at the CPAC conference. To this day, will not acknowledge that a majority of Americans did not vote for him. He, four years ago, he wouldn't acknowledge a majority of Americans didn't vote for him. Four years ago, he claimed, well, three to four million people voted illegally in California. And you can guess what type of people they were who voted illegally in California. But he's like, oh, they're voting illegally, right? As Lindsey Graham nicely said, he trusts the votes in Arizona, but not in Philadelphia. I wonder why. Um, so saying like, I don't, you know, I don't trust democratic outcomes. I don't trust judicial outcomes. We've had, you know, just dozens of judicial rulings saying these all these this was the safest election we've ever had. And, um, you know, a president who claims to run in terms of law and order yet basically says, I won't believe the FBI when they say that this was actually done by white supremacists. It wasn't done by this, you know, Antifa threat. Um, and he's not alone, right? I mean, there's actual assault on the Capitol by these supporters. And so I think when polarization gets to a point when we're actually comfortably denigrating democratic practices and institutions, then I don't know what the what the parallel is, right? I don't I don't know what the parallel is when we're at a place where people are where it's now the safer political position for a large segment of our um, political populace is, you know, the safer political position is to say that, no, this election was fraudulent without evidence. And so, I mean, I, and then it feels extreme to say, to go all the way back to 1860, that feels extreme. It feels like, well, it's not that bad, is it? It's like, I don't know if it's that bad, but I don't know what has been worse when you think about it. Now, I'd like to think that on the other, now having said something that extreme, let me bounce back and say, because I know there can be a lot of alarmism around this, we aren't living in Jim Crow, right? Like, right. I mean, the horrors of Jim Crow um, should never be minimized. Um, Steve, I know you share with me a love of the uh, MCU. I don't know if mm -hmm. that love extends to uh, the comic uh, Watchmen, uh, whether you read Watchmen or watched the Watchmen uh, TV series. No, neither. I'm a little bit familiar with the story arc, but not, but no, have not read or watched. You know, the, the, the series on HBO, which was, which was awesome. And I, I highly recommend it, but I recommend reading the comic first. And I, you know, I'm a snob that I'll say, read the comic. Don't watch the movie. The movie's <laughs> fine, but the comic's better. <laughs> the Watchmen series starts with a reenactment of the uh, Greenwood, uh, Oklahoma massacre. Mm. And it is powerful and it shows you just how violent our society was has been and the violence that sort of and, and and the series is about this idea of legacy and essentially saying this violence this racial violence this racial political violence is bred into the soil of our american system and that the rise of vigilante superheroes is a part of that violence it's, it's really again the, the comic is well done the series is well done and so and so it, it's so if we really understood the violence of our history, then to compare our current time to the levels of political violence of or, or you know, um, 
Well, yeah, just political violence of previous eras. It's, it's not incomparable. The difference is, and here's the hard truth, Jim Crow wasn't polarizing, right? Like mm-hmm. Jim Crow was like, that was, a, you know, that was a consensus view. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Reconstruction was considered a failure and Jim Crow was considered a good system until it wasn't. But the institution of Jim Crow and the fading of Jim Crow was both a bit, essentially a consensus movement, at least among white America, even a good part of black America. Right now, we just have, like the level of polarization in the literal sense of word and like the division and the harsh division and the inability and the fear, of, the inability of compromise, the fear of compromise, right? If we think about polarization as being the fear of compromise, then it is hard to think of a time that's worse than the Civil War, right? Like, I, I, I can't think of a time we've been more polarized, we've been more afraid of compromising and conceding to a, a contrary political position. I, I feel like you really could, you had to go back to 1860s, 1850s. I want to mm-hmm. push on that for a second. Do you think that Jim Crow sort of phased out by, like, cultural shift? Like, when you talk about consensus? Um, I think, well, when, by the time you saw, so yes, let me just answer your question. Do I think it by cultural consensus? Yes. Um, you know, the passage of the civil rights laws was heavily, was, was bipartisan, sure. um, was, um, you know, remember when, when president Johnson, he passed, you know, civil rights law in 1964, uh, then won by one of the biggest landslides in us history. So it was popular. And then again, and then you do see the backlash, right? You see the backlash happen in the late sixties. Um, oftentimes we date that with the, um, uh, Watts riots and you see the backlash happen. And then, but even then, and, and, and again, in the context of Vietnam war, you definitely see that polarization happen. But even then, after that polarization of the late 60s, you see, you know, you know, Nixon won his, won his re-election in a landslide. Reagan won his re-election in a landslide. I mean, you, you definitely see points of division, but it's because I think at that point, once the Civil Rights Act was passed, and, and I have to admit right now I'm a little bit um, somewhere, freestyling seems almost, that's probably not the right word, but I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of riffing here. So I might say some things and be like, yeah, let me think about that. I, I, I'll come back for another podcast and take it all back, but. <laughs> we'll re- um, a retraction episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, all this has an asterisk on it, but um, I, I think post civil rights movement, then there was a situation of like, I think there was agreement, you know, in a way to your point, Bob, I think, from, let's say, if we just want to have kind of historical markers, right? So from Brown v. Board of Education mm-hmm. to um, the passage of the, uh, in 1957, to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in, um, I mean, the Voting Rights Act, 1965. Um, then, I'm sorry, no, Brown v. Board of Education is 54, the bus boycott's 57. Um, but like that decade, I think you see a consensus saying like, the Jim Crow system is a bad system. I don't know that we ever reached an American consensus on what's a good system. 
right? And I think that goes into, then you get into sort of Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow, right? Like, okay, this segregation system is bad. We, we've decided to reject this. I don't know that we've ever had a consensus on, so what's good? I know we have a consensus on what we say should be good, but I don't know we ever reached a consensus on what is good. And I think right now, the, the high pushback we see today on like political correctness is a segment of our population that's not strictly white, by the way, that's saying, I'm tired of having to say words I don't actually think, right? Like, I'm tired of saying that I believe in this consensus that I've been forced to say when I don't actually think it. So I, so, so I think to your point, Bob, that I do think we consensus rejected Jim Crow, but if I, I, I think you have, you're onto something when you say that there wasn't a new consensus. I don't think we ever reached a new consensus. That's a really perceptive point, and I, I, I think that's a helpful way of framing it. Um, I hadn't thought of it before as uh, sort of villainizing the one system. You know, as like, okay, everybody agrees, that, or a lot of people agree this is bad, but um, not actually coming up with what true justice in the positive sense would look like, right? What a truly just uh, society would be. I want, I want to pivot for a second. Um, kind of spin off that because one of the issues that one of the issues that I saw um, particularly with the past two presidential elections back in 16 and 20 um, was the way that uh, evangelicals in particular uh, kind of process through the ethical ramifications of their political support, who they would vote for one or the other. And one of the things that became apparent to me, especially in this last one in 2020, is that um, a lot of particularly conservative evangelicals, and I'm sure it goes on both sides, um, support for Donald Trump was kind of a flat ethic, almost like a like a, a desperation ethic, right? You know, and, and in fact, often we'll talk about the battle for the soul of the nation or, a, um, uh, you know, so kind of rather than saying, hey, this this guy is attacking institutions of democracy, as you pointed out um, earlier, uh, we should be concerned about this. There's this almost desperate, well, but if he doesn't get in, then everything that we have is lost. It's almost an apocalyptic vision, right, of um, a way of life. So in, in light of kind of building on this, on what you've already um, talked about in terms of polarization and divisiveness, um, how do we kind of develop a thick ethical reasoning that really uh, brings the, as you said earlier, brings the ethic of, of Jesus into our political reasoning that's, that, that, that is more complete? Well, I think that, you know, what you call sort of a, a desperation ethic, I think the first thing you do is accept that an, an, an ethic based on fear can be nothing but flat or it's a, it's a poor foundation, right? Like you yeah. can't, in fact, it's such a poor foundation. You couldn't have something thick on top of it cause it'll collapse on itself. Right. And so I think if you want to have a, a sort of a, a, as you phrase it, a thick ethic of politics, it has to be founded on, it has to have a strong foundation under it, right. To handle the weight of what it's going to be. So it has mm-hmm. to be a pop, has to be something positive. And I think that's why, that's where we start with a, you know, again, a Christian ethic, a gospel ethic, a kingdom ethic, whatever term we want to use, that is the foundation. I think for us as Christians, it's like, well, who's our foundation? Well, it's Jesus, right? Any other answer is idolatrous, right? Um, and so then we have to, and then we have to engage in really difficult 
um, delicate work of trying to think about what is a political ethic of, of you know, um, of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus look like, right? And that, and that, and I, and I want to very much acknowledge that that's difficult. There might be a lot of contestation over that, um, because you know there are issues of, well, you know, how much, like, how much do I take Jesus literally versus you know contextually, or you know, and um, did Jesus even intend for me to do that? So, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But I do think that when you hear Christians talking about politics and all they're talking about, or a majority of what they're talking about is fear, we should, a, a big bell should be ringing in our ears. Like this is, you know, the red flag should be waving, right? Because when Christians are acting out of fear, we're doing the exact opposite of what the most repeated command in the Bible is, right? I mean, I think this is always one of those nice Sunday school trivia points, right? That like, do not fear is the biggest, most repeated command in the Bible. So, you know, let me point attention to another one of my colleagues who I respect so greatly, um, uh, Theon Hill, who's in the communications department. And a week after the 2016 election, uh, he um, he and a, and a um, uh, alum and then uh, slash employee at the time hosted an event talking about this. and. You know, Dr. Hill said, what if we as Christians decided that if we consider that neither side is worthy of our vote, what if we sit on election and, and we make them work for our vote? Uh, actually, let me refer to yet another uh, Dr. Hill in our school, Dr. Enoch Hill, who's in, who's in the econ department. And he talking about this from an economic standpoint, talking about social media, he said something that just kind of to a group of students that kind of just, I think everyone there blew their minds. He was talking about social media and, you know, the standard thing is, oh, we're talking about social media. So of course we should be bashing it. And what Dr. Enoch Hill said instead was, well, if we, if you're on Facebook, they're trying to like, you are the, you're the product. They're trying to understand who you are so they can sell to you. And so what if you make clear that your values are Christian? What if you make clear that your values are Christ-centered and that you and you have an opportunity to change the way the market acts, right? And so what are we, as Christian with agency, what are we doing with our agency? Like not only do, because when I hear Christians talking out of fear, they're also then talking out of a lack of agency saying, well, I had two terrible choices. So I had to do this one. And it's sort of like, oh, so you have no agency in Christ? Like you, you, you just, because, so fear has robbed you of agency. That's literally what you just said. Excellent. And so, you know. That's solid. I mean, and that, that excites me because that's um, something that I've, I've thought quite a bit about is if we got our act together and stopped playing like this was the only game in town, um, what a message we could uh, send, <laughs> you know what I mean? If, if we said we're not satisfied with these options, but we constantly, and I, I'm speaking broadly here, constantly capitulate to this idea of, well, we only have two bad options, so let's choose the lesser of two evils. And it's become less of that even and more just like, well, this is the guy that we like. <laughs> and it's really discouraging, but I love that. That's, well, I mean, that's I mean, no, to, to, and to that latter point, Bob, I mean, there's sometimes where I kind of wonder when people are saying, oh, I had two bad options. I took the bad, I chose the lesser of two evils. I kind of wonder how evil they actually thought the option they took was. But, but, to, but to another point that you were getting at there, and going back to something I said earlier where I said, you know, God's values work in our world. We're in a society right now, in our American society, where people are crying out like, oh, I don't like either of the parties. I wish there was another party. What if Christians stood up and said, I'm not satisfied either? 
then we're actually helping create, we're having, helping to change the incentive structure that maybe we would get a party we liked, right? Like we keep capitulating and then complaining about the way things are, right? We keep saying, oh, I hate this system, but I have to play into it. Well, okay, fine. But then don't tell me later on about how you're going to be, how you're going to be a society changer, right? You've, you've capitulated already in one of the most important choices that we just had. So either you lack the agency you claim you have, or you actually like the person you're pretending that you don't. And either one is a bad option. Either one is a bad action. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get some feedback for this episode. I love it. I love it. Yes. I already so, have. I got tenure. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I think that's so true. So the, uh, the, there's my mind is going a bunch of different directions. But this might be a little bit more of a hot take. Um, but. Tell me a little bit about the, or, or give me a thought about uh, the way we, in society in general, critique media and politicians. So uh, in my uh, in my mind, there's there are moderate ones and there are extreme ones, right? They're the ones you're like, wow, you're saying all kinds of crazy stuff um, and none of this is being backed up and you're buying into, you, your bias is showing so easily. And then there are other ones that are trying to be middle of the road and that are considered more legitimate generally. Um, but the, the thing that makes me uncomfortable is, and I'm not trying to defend the media by any means or, or even certain politicians, but oftentimes they seem like just a microcosm of us. Uh, and, and so we're like, man, the media is lying. They're like, right. Because we all tell the truth when it comes to <laughs> pushing our agenda forward or, um, you know, this politician don't vote them back in office because they're doing this, like they're contributing to the polarization. And there are stupid public decisions that public servants make, you know, like whether it's, I don't know, let's just say fleeing your general area of responsibility to go to somewhere more comfortable while your constituents are suffering, all of those kinds of things. That's just off the top of my head. Um, but like, there's all kinds of poor decisions that are made, uh, but we tend to do the same thing. And so I'm, I think I'm concerned about what that critique actually does when it, uh, like with us, like um, it doesn't seem like we take as much responsibility because we're just like the media's lying. And we're like, there's been an assault on truth for some time, but literally there's video. How is this lying? You know, or, or there's nothing to that claim, you know? So I, I would love just any thoughts that you have on, the way in which we use and talk about media and even our public servants. No, I mean, Steve, I'm right there with you. I mean, all I'm going to do is just affirm everything you said. So I'm not sure if that's what you wanted, but that's definitely what I'm going to do. I, I, you know, I often find when we talk about like, um, yeah, just like, Oh, you know how polarized we are and things don't work in Washington. And again, in this era we're in, I feel like this is just something like I've never seen, but, but I felt this on this particular point, Steve, that you're making, I felt this for a very long time when people say like, you know, Oh, things don't work in Washington and we're so polarized and why can't they do this? It's like, look, your politicians are responding to market incentives, which another way of saying you, the voter, right? Like you're, you know, you, you're, again, you're in charge, you have agency, right? The, your media organizations, they need ad revenue, right? So they're responding to a market. So, you know, look, I, 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 I was raised listening to Michael Jackson and my favorite song of his is Man in the Mirror. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Um, 
Stop blaming, stop blaming your politicians, stop blaming your media. And let me ask you what you're doing, right? Are you staring at the news for 12 of its 24 hours and getting all revved up and then getting on social media and saying something completely reckless? Um, mm. And again, if, and if you're being responsible, good, right? And then, and I'm glad you're being responsible and I want to join you in being responsible and I want to take a, and I want to take inventory over what I'm doing. I mean, there are a few times where I've posted something and literally taken it down and said like, you know what, this isn't helping a discourse that I'm complaining about. So wh- sure. why am I talking? Right. So I think we all can be just constantly, again, right, back to a theme, the value of humility. Right. These are Christian ethics. Right. We need greater humility in our politics where we can look at ourselves and recognize like we're ramping things up. Um, there also needs to be a time, though, when we now do media organizations lie to us. Yes. But as you rightly said, Steve, people are liars. Right. So like I get lied to all the time. I tell lies. Well, not all the time. I'm a wonderful person, but the other the other sinners, right? They tell <laughs> the, the other lies. ones. Um, Hold on a second. But, How reliable is this podcast going to be? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is this is like Tesserai is just a stack of lies. Um, oh, okay. It, it, it's like is is it even Tesserai? Shouldn't it be Tesserai? Uh, that was a question I had on the first podcast. You guys cleared that up for me. Thank you. Back to your point, Steve. Though, like. To the extent that we're blaming our institutions, our leaders, our media for the effect they're having on our society, again, I've just spent some time talking about the effect Donald Trump had on our society. We as Americans did something about it. We voted him out of office, whether he was willing to recognize it or not. Um, it, I, th- even as I'm perhaps more supportive of a Biden administration, we just saw today that, or at least the day we're recording this, um, that Neera Tanden, who is nominee for budget director, had to step down. Why? Because she had a series of nasty tweets on people in different ideological directions. We're seeing pushback against ugliness in our society we don't like, and that's a good thing. We have to take responsibility for our own society. So do media uh, organizations lie? Yes. Then hold them accountable. Do your politicians lie? Yes, then hold them accountable. Do your politicians make hypothetically reckless decisions during a time of crisis? Yes, then hold them accountable. And if you're not holding them accountable, then again, take a look in the mirror. Well, there's a lot more to this fantastic conversation, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to hit pause right there. We'll be back next week with part two of this dialogue with Dr. Michael McCoy. As always, we would love to keep the conversation going. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Tesserai Podcast. It'd be great to hear from you, things that you enjoyed, were challenged by, or questions you may have. Until next week, this has been Tesserai. 